Let me go ahead and settle it once for all, for all those who are saved, redeemed, born again of the Lord. You'll come into uh, complete agreement with this. 3027 Denver Broncos. 3027 Denver Broncos. I told them in the earlier gathering that, that class always beats style. So you can dab all you want, Mr. Cam Newton, but when you bring out the Tennessee arm for Mr. Paint Manning himself, he's going to go out with a win tonight. Now, my heart tells me Broncos. My mind tells me Panthers, all right? I know we're closer to Charlotte than we are to Denver, but nonetheless, if I have any Broncos, anybody going for the Broncos? Come on, let me hear you. Anybody going for the Panthers? Some of you all just, y'all are like, I don't, what, what's today? It's Super Bowl Sunday, Super Bowl Sunday. Super Bowl Sunday. Well, we're glad that you're with us this morning. It's good to see uh, Nick and Lori Pugh uh, as guests with us. So grateful that you guys are able to be here. And uh, I think we've known you all. Uh, been Meredith uh, and I, friends of ours since 2007, but I knew you, I think, at the end of high school, back in 06. Y'all were just in the dating stage, and it's good to have you uh, here with us today. If you didn't receive a message card when you came in, you can raise your hand, and the ushers will serve you right quick, and uh, they'll be glad to do that. We are starting a brand new series today, and uh, that series is called Fighting for Your Family, and it'll take place the entire month of February. We could not be more excited what we believe God is going to speak to our community and uh, just encourage you not to miss a week. It's going to be powerful all month long. And um, in 2006, something uh, historical happened in our nation. It was the point in our nation's history where more single people became uh, there were, there were, became more single people in the adult population than married. Now, single people in our nation from adults outnumber, in fact, the marrieds. And as we kind of journey through this month of February, we're going to talk a lot about the family. Now, the family, as you know, is a very delicate topic. When we talk about it, it stirs things up in our homes. It stirs things up in our marriages. It stirs things up in our children. A lot of you could be asking, well, what about men? What about women? What about fathers? What about, uh, you know, wives? We're going to talk about each of those and how each of those will cause us ultimately to have better homes. And so we can't talk about them all at once. So we want to encourage you to be back each and every week because if you just hear one message, then uh, it's likely for you to take from that and say, well, they're one-sided. And so it's impossible to hit all topics in one week. How many of you know, though, that God wants us to have families? Families were instituted. They were instituted by God. That's the reality of it. But because of God's Word, the family has been attacked really since its institution. But in our nation, I would say really under attack in the last about 50 years. In fact, if you think about our churches, it's really rare to actually see in church a husband and a wife both serving Christ, raising their children in the things of God. That's an abnormality, actually, in our day and age. Most are divorced. Most are broken families. People having children without marriage. And why has all that happened? Because of our attempt to redefine in society the family. God, indeed, does have a plan for the family, and it's a higher standard than the world. It's up to the church to uphold that standard. And so a lot of times when we talk about the family, people feel like, oh, I feel bad because mine's not working. I just want to say from the outset of this message, we're not here this month to condemn people in brokenness. That's not why we're here. We believe God hates divorce. That's what the scripture says. Divorce being the enemy of marriage. So we got to say something about it. So ultimately we don't get divorced one day. But if you've been at the blunt and received the, the pain of that, then we don't condemn you. We extend mercy. God extends mercy and grace and love to you. And God can redeem every moment of our life. But we've got to say some things about living holy. We've got to say some things about living pure and straight. And so as we listen to God's word, I think it's a better choice to live according to God's pattern for the family. If you're in agreement with that, just say amen. amen. There were some studies done about five years ago concerning the generation before and after the 1960s. Now, if you study our nation's history, the 1960s, it was something called the Cultural Revolution. It was in the 1960s that uprooted really the family life. This is where the whole agenda of the gay community came forward to oppose um, heterosexual marriage, to advocate homosexual marriage. Now, since that happened, I want you to see what that's done to society. William Bennett, the former Secretary of Education, released these facts. Since 1963, violent crime in our nation has increased by 500%. Births outside of marriage increased by 400%. Divorce has increased by 400%. Children growing up in a single parent homes has increased by 300%. Child abuse has increased by 340%. Teen suicide has increased by 200%. We attempted to redefine families and we said we know how to do this better than what God and we're going to 
do what we want to do, and we lower our standards, and look what's happened as a nation. The average teenager today grows up, and by the age of 18, male or female, that teenager has watched right around 100,000 sexual situations on TV or movies, and out of 100,000 of them, 91% of those sexual encounters were between people outside of marriage. 91,000. Of, or 90, or excuse me, 91% of that 100,000, which would again be 91,000. And so, you like that, right? It hit myself. In other words, you don't have to be married or you don't have to, you don't, you don't have to be married to, to have sex. Children are growing up in our church today and by the time they're in 12th grade, George Barna says 80% of them who knew the Lord fall away from God. By college, they don't want to have anything to do with their parents, God, or His Word. And I just think, I say all that to say that something must change. Something must change. If we look at the situation in our nation, we've got to understand it's up to the church. The Bible says we're in a war against the enemy, the spirit of darkness. And I'll just be honest with you, Christianity for far too long has not been fighting well. We've fallen prey. And the issue is, what does God say? And I love this in Isaiah chapter 58, because this is 230 uh, years ahead of time. Isaiah is prophesying to a time for Israel, where Israel would come back from Babylonian captivity. And Israel, see, in, their, their, in, in Babylonia, they begin to intermarry their faiths, and they fell away from God. Families now had dual religions. God lifted His hand off of Israel. It tore the walls of, of Jerusalem down. And Isaiah saw off in the distance that Ezra would come back along and rebuild after the edict from King Cyrus. And he says these words, those from among you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. And you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. The restorer. And what happens? What's his standard to rebuild? Lies? Well, they come back and they read aloud God's word. And the people begin to repent. And Haggai and Zechariah come along in the, the season to prophesy the rebuilding. And Nehemiah comes along and reconstructs the walls. And all of that's a spiritual sign of representing the standards that have to be rebuilt. Once the walls were built and reestablished standards of God in Israel, then all of a sudden the nation began to thrive. How many of you know in our nation our walls and our standards have come down? The enemy has come in like a flood through the internet and the TV and the movies and culture and trying to destroy and pound away at everything that God says is holy and right. And it's not a candidate and it's not a GOP candidate's responsibility to restore the family. It's the churches. It's the gospel's intention that we would be the people who would be the repair of the breach. That we would raise up the foundations of many generations to come. This is what we're talking about for the next few weeks. What does it mean to rebuild the walls? I want to talk to specifically today those in the room that are single, but I'm also going to speak to marrieds. I want to talk about what it means to look for the right one. Looking for the right one. Talking about each other's soulmate. How to find the soulmate. But before I do that, I want to read a story. And um, if you don't work on your marriage, you'll have trouble because you're not working on it. He said, Pastor Chad said, living things need attention. That's why we're doing this marriage retreat, which is going to be so exciting for our community. But I want to give you an example of a couple who didn't. Their names are Martha and Stumpy. Now, Stumpy and his wife Martha went to the state fair each year. Every year, Stumpy would say, Martha, I'd like to ride in that there airplane. And every year, Martha would look at her husband and say, I know, Stumpy, but that airplane ride costs $10. And $10 is $10. So one year, Stumpy and Martha went to the fair, and Stumpy, Stumpy said, Martha, I'm 71 years old. Come on. He said, if I don't ride that airplane this year, I may never get another chance. And Martha replied, Stumpy, I understand, but that their airplane ride cost $10. And $10 is $10. The pilot overheard them and went up to him and said, folks, I'll make you a deal, okay? I'll take you both up for a ride. How about this? If you can stay quiet for the entire ride, not say one word, I won't charge you. But if you say one word, it's $10. Stumpy and Martha looked at each other. And nodded their heads, and they agreed, and they went up in the airplane. Well, the pilot gets up and does all kinds of twists and turns and backflips and rolls and dives, and, and not a word was heard, complete silence. So he did all of his tricks over again to try to get a word, but still not a word. So they landed, and pilot turned to Stumpy in the plane and said, By golly, bro, I did everything I could, I did everything I could think of to get you to yell out, but you didn't. And Stumpy looked at him and said, Well, I was going to say something when Martha fell out, but $10 is $10. $10. Is $10. What happens when you don't work on your marriage? Well, Stumpy was relieved. <laughs> 
He was relieved. But Jesus in Luke chapter 10 is being confronted by a lawyer. And I think it's so powerful because the lawyer in verse 25 came and tested Jesus saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What's written in the law? They said, what's your reading of it? What's the Old Testament say? So he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. Now, it's very interesting to me, this text of Scripture, is this man coming to Jesus saying, what do I need to get into heaven? And Jesus says, what do you read in the Old Testament? He says, what I read is to love God with my heart, soul, strength, and mind. He looks at him and says, that's correct. So what's Jesus doing? He's validating, and we need to understand this at the beginning of this series. Jesus is validating there's three dimensions to our life. Our heart, which is our spirit. When we're dead, we're born into sin, our spirit is dead. We don't have that spirit. All of a sudden, Adam and Eve, when they died spiritually, when they sinned against God, so we're all born with a dead spirit. When we receive Jesus, we become born again. He who is one with the Lord is one with Him in spirit. But not only that, we have a spirit that can now commune with God, but we also have a body. And we have a soul. That's what he says, which is our mind, will, and emotions. Now, you need to understand something up front. All three of these were made primarily to love God. In fact, Matthew 22, Jesus said, All the Bible is encapsulated in the great commandment. All the law and prophets testify to the fact that you should love God with heart, soul, and mind. So listen, your mind was not made to think. Your mind was made to love God by thinking. Your body was not made just to act and feel. It was made by God, first of all, to love God. That's why God gave you a body. Your spirit was made by God to love Him first, to commune with Him. Your soul, which we're talking about today, soulmates, it's the seat of your will and emotions and mind. He said we to love God with all of our soul. This message is talking about becoming that one soul. Now, before we jump into the text in Genesis 24, I want to disarm three soul myths. Soul myths. For those in the room that I think we hear a lot of times, a lot of misinformation in our world about becoming soulmates. Now, my wife and I, we met in high school, and uh, I'll begin by saying Meredith Mosgrove is my soulmate. She is. We've been married for almost nine years. We dated for almost six years. And uh, let me tell you how we dated and met real quick. I was 16 years old, and, and I was in a con- competition called Mr. Irresistible. I'd cut my hair into a mullet, a business in the front, party in the back. I did it because my, my, my schoolmates dared me, and I got involved in a beauty pageant in my school for men called Mr. Irresistible. She was there that night. I was acting a fool because I didn't know Jesus. And we went to eat at Steak and Shake afterwards. The first time I'd sat across the table from her and I didn't even know Jesus. The next morning I went in my life drastically changed. I'd never in my life met Jesus Christ. Okay. I'd never met Jesus Christ. I was a really, really good sinner. And uh, I was a professional sinner, actually. And uh, I woke up every day with a desire to sin. And every day I went to bed really successful. I was really, really good at it. And, uh, and I met Meredith. And uh, after I met Meredith, I then came to the Lord. But listen, I didn't receive Christ because Mary wanted me to. I received Christ because sin lied to me. And I was empty. I didn't have anything I, uh, I wanted to do that I didn't do. I sinned, but I went to bed empty and would lay in bed empty after parties and hanging out and think, why am I not happy? Why do I feel lonely? I visited church. First time I felt God, I had no conscience before that. And I I said, you know what? I'm going to follow Jesus for the rest of my life. And that empty place filled up. It was the reality I'd been looking for. I lost all my friends that day. And all of a sudden, Meredith and I kind of grew up together. She's beautiful. Uh, I haven't changed a bit. She's just gotten more and more beautiful. I've just looked the same since I've been. No, I'm just totally kidding. This thing called ministry, I looked the other day. I'm like, Meredith, what is wrong with me? Look at at my eyes. Anybody got some cream? You know, I mean, what's, I mean, I got gray head on the side. I'm 30 years, you know, I've changed a lot. But but she's only got more beautiful. So I'm going to give you three soulmates, myths, what I would call three dangerous myths that we believe and set us up for failure and wrong expectations. Number one, we believe that my soulmate will be just like me. This is the first myth. Like, if I find my soulmate, they'll be just like me. If I find my perfect soulmate, we really won't even have to talk to each other. We can just sit at Starbucks and look at each other and know what each other's thinking. We'll just sit and giggle all day. (laughs) You know, we'll just smile and giggle all day long, you know, because they're my perfect one. No, no, no. You know, for me, when we started dating, you know, I I thought maybe like if you find your soulmate, they're on the same page all the time. I've seen couples who had success even with online dating, right? Online dating's good. I've seen couples who had success with connecting. But listen, the dangerous thing about it is you can match in every category, category known to man. But even if you match in all the categories, you're still different people. And you need to understand something very carefully. Compatibility in relationships is based on character and values, not sameness. 
not sameness. What do you mean, Craig? You're not the same. If you find your perfect soulmate, they will be very different from you. Compatibility means you're a believer in Christ. We share the same values. We're on the same ship, going the same direction. But we're very different people. This is the reason a lot of people stay single. They keep encountering different people they're dating, and then they get scared and act like they should be just like them. They will never be just like you. Your soulmate will not be just like you. Here's the second myth people believe. If I marry my soulmate, we won't have any big problems, and we'll always be in love. Well, that'll set you up for huge disappointment and huge failure. Why? If you have your perfect soulmate, you'll have mega issues you got to work through. Can I hear some married people say amen? If you prepare properly, it minimizes those things, but you still have issues. And it's important for the devil right now to get you to believe that. Because if you believe that if you have your soulmate, your feelings will always be positive and you'll never have any problems. When you wake up one day married and your feelings are negative or you have no feelings at all, that's when the devil whispers into the ear, you've married the wrong person. I've mentored couples who thought this. What a tragic thought. Could there be any more tragedy on planet earth than to wake up every day with someone who you're married to and you are under the assumption that you married the wrong person? There is nothing more torturous. And then what happens is they begin to believe the lie that I've married the wrong person. What a tempting thought to go through the rest of my life. Most people's concept is that when you marry the right person, all will be well. You don't have to work at it. No, no, no. Soulmates are not born. They're made in the trenches of life. They're made in the difficulties of life. And this is the way God has set it up. Number three soulmate myth is that my soulmate will always make me happy and meet all my needs. Newsflash, no one person can always make me happy. The true basis of my happiness is God and God alone. And only God can meet our deepest needs. And only God can give us a foundation of happiness. If you have a relationship with God, you can be happy when people are acting weird. If you have a relationship with God, your spouse cannot even be saved. And you can be as joyous as you've ever been. If you have a relationship with God, all your streams and all your rivers can be fulfilled in Jesus. No one person can make me happy all the time. Mayor, I love her. She's my soulmate, but she don't make me happy all the time. Like when she turns the Duke game off. Even when we first year, we've not been in the top 25 since 1978. Good thing we've won the last two. But if she watches one more HGTV show when I try to go to bed at night, it's 12.15 last night watching HGTV, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to sleep in another room. You know what I'm saying? I cannot stand another HGTV show. Oh, yeah, buy this house for $120, $60,000 budget. Yeah, you spent $60,000 in the furniture, bro. Don't tell me on that TV it's $60,000 to redo this house. I mean, it's a, it's a half a million setting people up for failure. <laughs> she don't always make me happy. My happiness is not Meredith Mossgrove. It's Jesus Christ. My Savior is not Meredith Mossgrove. That position was already filled when I met her. She don't have the opportunity to feel. There's no sense in submitting a resume to be my savior or my sin take care of her. Okay? She's the person who is my soulmate. And here's an encapsulated version of the myths we believe. When I marry my soulmate, they'll be just like me. I'll always be happy. All my needs will be met. We won't have big problems. We'll always be in love. Well, that's baloney. And you spell it B-O-L-O-G-N-A. It's just not true. It's a lie that will set you up for heartache and a false sense of failure. So I want to speak just for a few moments in the time we have together today, how do you find the right one? This is such a privilege to study God's Word together. You're going to need your Bible. If you go to a church that you don't need a Bible, then you found a church that you don't need. Okay, let's make that clear. Let's go to Genesis. I can't fit it on your card. It's impossible. It's the longest chapter in the entire book of Genesis. It's called Genesis 24, and there's 67 verses. I obviously cannot go through all those verses. What I want to do for the few moments is hit the main ones. And I want to share a story that, that applies to those in the room looking for the right one in your life. Listen, parents, you may have already found the right one. So this also applies to you because it may be used by you to help your kids look for the right one. Very practical passage. Somebody says, do I have the right one? Well, you do now. If you're married, you have them. There's no, there's no you know, B door. There's no option two. If you're married, you got, you got, you got your one. All right? For those who are looking for the one, let's just ask some questions and see as God speaks. You say, Craig, you can't do this. I'm going to tune out. You've only been married eight years, 30 years old. You're wet behind the ears. Well, that's why I understand that sentiment. That's why what I'll do is I'll not just speak from personal experience today. I'll speak from biblical principles. And biblical principles 
They trump and are authoritative over any personal experience. Genesis chapter 24, this is God's word. Open your heart wide. He'll speak to you. He'll change your life today. Verse 1, look at the Bible reads in Genesis chapter 24 and verse 1. I love this passage of scripture. Now Abraham was very old, 140 to be exact. And the Lord had blessed him in every way. Would you say that with me? Say the Lord had blessed him in every way. You want to talk about a life mission statement, that should be it. You should lay on your deathbed saying, the Lord has blessed me in every way. Is there a greater statement one can make? The Lord had blessed him in every way. I want to be old and blessed one day. Is somebody else with me today? I want to be old and blessed. I like it says, it says he was blessed in every way. It doesn't say he was perfect in every way because he wasn't. It doesn't say his life was easy in every way. He had uncertainty. He had failures. He was called out of the land of Ur in Genesis 12 to go to a land that God would show him. At 15 years old, his young son Isaac, he received the call from God to take the promised son and to kill him. Now God obviously didn't want to kill Isaac, whom we're about to read about today. But God wanted to test his hearts. Abraham was a man who had made some mistakes. One time he lied to the king and he said that Sarah was his sister. That's not the best moment for the patriarch or the father of all nations. To lie. He lied. He had, a, he had some, some difficulties. But at the end of it all, he, the Bible says he was blessed. So I want to start this series today saying I'm not teaching you how to have a perfect relationship. You can't. I'm not teaching you how to have a perfect family. You can't. I'm not teaching you how to be a perfect parent. You can't. What I'm teaching you is how to have a blessed life. How to have a blessed marriage. How to have blessed kids. How to have a blessed spouse. How to have a blessed home. Even through all the trials, even through all the difficulties, even through all the uncertainties, we can be blessed. I want you to say it like you mean it. Say, I can be blessed. Do it loud. Come on, say, I can be blessed. The devil don't want us to hear that and believe that. Look at verse 2. He said to the senior servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, the guy's name was Eleazar. He was a servant. He said to him, Put your hand under my thigh. Whoa, 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 buddy. You didn't see that coming in the Bible lesson, did you? Put your hand under my thigh. It's verse 3. So the servant filed a harassment charge with the plan. No, I'm just kidding. That's not the case, right? He, 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 this is an ancient context of extending a contract. Okay? Look at your neighbor real quick and say, I like written contracts better. I like written contracts better, right? He put his hand up under his thigh and said, ultimately, isn't that amazing? Could you see somebody going up under, hey, buddy, you know, it's pretty amazing kind of thought, but hey, big buddy, I promise I'll make this oath to you. But it was an ancient form of how you made the, co- the, the covenant. And he goes on, look what he says in verse 3. Put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, the God of earth. Remember, Abraham's talking to the servant. That you will not get a wife for my son Isaac from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I'm living. But will go to my own country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. Remember what I told you in Genesis 12? Abraham left his own country. He journeyed 500 miles to a new place called the land of Canaan. He endured a famine. He went through difficult times. He had to go to Egypt one time, which is another 250 miles. He's now been in Canaan 65 years. His son Isaac will now carry on the promise of God. What was that? That I will make your descendants as numerous as the sands on the seashore, the stars in the sky. Isaac's got to be the one to carry on the promise, but we got a problem. God wants to make Abraham a nation, but Isaac's going to need a wife. In order to have a child, and he's 40 years old, and Abraham's not real confident that he's going to find somebody. See, in the time, it was customary to be married by 30. You know what that means? Isaac's about 10 years late. There's one thing I would say about that, is that we don't have to freak out when we are not on schedule with the time that culture says it would happen. Because what you're about to see is that God arranges this marriage. God arranges it. God brings it together. And sometimes I think we can tend to cower under the expectation that culture places on us. But, but this man was past his, what we would say, time. By the way, when we talk about arranged marriages, I've got to be honest with you, I'm a little bit in favor of bringing arranged marriages back. Maybe it's because I have a three-year-old daughter. I don't know if that's the case or not. But, uh, hey, a little stat right here. Did you know that uh, those who arrange marriages, did you know the divorce rate in arranged marriages is 5 to 7% less than marriages that originate out of love? Just saying. Just saying. You know, I look at Marley, and I think about that day. I, I speak to Knox, and this is one of the things we do in our household. I've, I've done it since my kids, I guess, could understand me in language. I would tell my son all the time, i say, Knox... I don't want you to grow up. 
You can't grow up. And he says, Dad, well, I have to. I have to. He said, if I stop eating, maybe I'll, I'll stop. I said, well, son, you got to keep eating. You know, you got, you got to keep on eating. We're, we're trying to get some meat on you, right? But he, I always go through this thing. Son, I, I, I don't want you to grow up. I told him the other day when we were putting him to bed, I said, son, I'm going to kiss you on the mouth till you're 35 years old. After I walked out of the room, I thought that might be a little bit weird. You know what I'm saying? If I kiss him at 35. But still, I looked at him. I said, son, I love you to death. Don't, you don't have to grow up. And he says, daddy. I said, daddy, I have to grow up. And so uh, we made this deal a while back. He said, Daddy, I'll ha- i got to grow up, so I'm going to have to. So I will grow up, but here's, I'll make a deal with you. I'm going to live in the house where you and Mom are the rest of my life. And I said, well, when you get married, you can come live in my house. But look, i got news for you. Me and Mom are going to move out. Okay, We can't live together, all right? But, but you know what I'm saying when I talk about arranged marriages. What we see in this passage is how God arranges marriages. God arranged a marriage. How God brings relationships together. And I just tell you, for those in the room that are looking for the right one, that's what I want for your life as a single. To have an arranged marriage by the ultimate matchmaker. His name is God. He's the one who made you. Who better to bring relationships together than the one who created you? So how does God work this out? Well, first thing, he says to the servant, don't go get a woman from the land of Canaan. Now, listen, the land of Canaan was the promised land, and it would one day be a holy land, but right now it's not holy. Why? Because Israel hadn't been there to occupy it. That time, there were people there in Canaan that worshipped many gods. So Abraham says, if you get a woman out of this land for Isaac, she will influence my son to worship other gods, and I have an oath with my God to worship him only. So don't get a woman from an idolatrous nation. Travel back 500 miles and get a woman from there so God can be the center of that marriage. Go back home. Now verse 5. Then the servant asked him, What if? Would you underline that, sir, that, that phrase in your Bible? What if? What if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? What if? Notice that. The servant asked him, What if the woman? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? Now notice that right here from the outset, the servant's already making a contingency plan in case God doesn't come through. I know you've never done that before, but this guy's barbaric. I know you trust him always. I know, I know you do. I know your trust for God is just pristine. It's amazing. You've never made a contingency plan. You've never made a plan B. You never made a backup plan in case God didn't come through with what God says he'll do. But this man, he's barbaric. He's a Scythian. You know, he cuts people's heads off. He's a bad dude right here. He he made a, a plan that what if if I go, Eleazar said, to find this woman and she won't come back with me. Y'all never done that before? Y'all never made backup plans for God? What if, God, she doesn't come back? What if, Abraham, she doesn't come back with me? And he says in verse 6, notice his response, Make sure that you do not take my son back there. You got it? The Lord, the God of Abraham in heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land, and who spoke to me and promised an oath, saying, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. If the one woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. Got it? If this woman doesn't want to come back, then so be it. But the servant starts playing the what if game. We've all played that. What if I end up marrying the wrong person, Craig? Or what if I what if I don't go to that event that I was supposed to go at the church and that was the time that God brought them there so that we could spark a conversation? And what if I what if I married the wrong one? Is there only one for me? Well, let's play that out logically. If there's only one person that you can marry, only one, and you marry the wrong one. And then that one will marry the wrong one. And then the one was supposed to marry that one will marry the wrong one. And then that one that was supposed to marry that one would marry the wrong one, causing generations of chaos. And you've effectively thrown off the balance of planet Earth and the universe because you made a bad decision of the one. God is bigger than that. There's not just one for you. It's romantic, but not biblical. Not biblical. So God says, hey, some of you, you understand this promise I gave you. So you're like, well, Pastor Craig, what if I get old? Like I'm 18 and what if I die a virgin? What if I miss the right one? We're worried. We're anxious. And then you become a parent. Oh, my goodness. You really start to play games like, what if? I'm already thinking like, what if a man comes and asks for a date for my daughter? Well, 
It's going to have to start at 3 p.m. and be home by 7 p.m., all right? And if it's coming by 3 p.m., you're going to have to walk in. You're going to see my 380 LCP right there in my pocket. And then you're going to answer the question, what will you do to preserve my daughter's purity and all of her innocence tonight? Give me the step-by-step. You know, I'm already thinking for my, myself. How, and anything you do to her, I'll do to you. You kiss her, I'll kiss you. You grab her hand, I'll grab your hand. Yeah, it's a, it's a good philosophy, right? I'm already thinking as a dad, how am I going to go about this, right? And so if you think about this process, we, we ask these questions. I could, what if? And I like what Abraham said. Notice this. Notice what Abraham said. He said, God, you promised. You made me a promise. Listen to me. Your security is not found in another person. Your security is found in God's promise. Your security is always in what he has promised. And a lot of people are waiting on someone to pop them the question, will you marry me? But let me tell you, the most important question, if you're single in here, and the most important four words that would determine your destiny are not, will you marry me? The most important four words that would determine your destiny are, God has promised me. It's not, will you marry me? Not my life will be changed if God, if someone asked me, will you marry me? But my life is changed because God you have promised me will you marry me of course like some other dysfunctional human being can make you whole you got to settle this in your heart that it's not two half people that make a whole person they actually subtract from one another so there's only one half you're responsible for right now and that's your half and happiness is not found in finding the right person it's in becoming the right person and the greater person you become the greater person you attract and so God asks you in your single years to say you know what God has promised me and Abraham said we ain't leaving the land. I'm sorry. I don't care if she'll come back or not. If she won't come back, it's not the person because God said he promised that he would provide a woman for my son. I wish I could get some people in here this morning who would make the same declaration that I'm not leaving the land that God has called me to. I'm not leaving the place that God has called me to plant my feet. I'm not leaving the land, the place in God that he has given me. I'm not leaving the place uh, of the promised land which represents my place in God or my position in Christ. I wish every single person person that we could hear and talk to. Yes, God will forgive you and your mistakes. Yes, God will redeem every part of your life. But I wish you would make the decision before you get into a dating relationship so you don't have to bear the scars of bad decisions that you say, I'm not leaving the land. I refuse to leave the land. I want God's best in my life and I'm not going to settle for anything else. I'm going to trust. I'm not going to settle. I'm not going to give in. I want God's best. I don't care if I'm the only one in my group that's single. I don't care if everybody else says I should do this. I'm not compromising my standards. I want God's will for my life. If I'm married in the room, I wish somebody who is married would say, you know what? I want to make a decision. Even when we don't feel tingly, even in fact, when I wake up and you won't admit it, but you look at the spouse and you don't actually have good emotions towards the spouse that you see when you wake up in the morning and you almost feel like giving up on the relationship. And it seems like now the wave and the feeling of insecurity is greater than the promise God has made. I wish married people would make the decision. You know what? I am not leaving the land. We are not leaving the covenant. We're not stepping aside to the covenant because God has promised me. It's not will you marry me? It's God has promised me. And what God has promised me, God will take care of. I wish some men in the room would make this decision. In fact, I wish some men in our nation would stop abandoning the family because they have enough hormones to become a father, but not enough guts to stay and be a daddy. And they would say, you know what? I'm not leaving the land. I'm staying faithful to my family. I'm not leaving. I'm staying faithful. I'm going to keep pursuing. I'm going to keep loving. I'm going to keep having intention. This thing takes work. That's what he said. I, don't you? What would happen if dads were like Abraham and said, I don't care. I don't care if she don't come back. My son ain't leaving the land. He's not leaving the land. He's not compromising standards in the effort to just not stay single. He's not leaving the land. He's not leaving the land. God will give a spouse. See, I'm, uh, I'm only 30 years old and I think about being married. I've only been married almost nine years, so... For those who are single, I just want to tell you, I'm not so far removed from singleness that I can't relate to it. But Meredith and I have passed the big mark of seven years. Seven years, in fact, in America is where most marriages end by the seventh year, so we've made past that marker. So what am I saying? I'm saying that I can look at any person in the room, whether you're married or single, and I can say, I feel you. Whatever side you're on. And I love Abraham's security in God. Don't you love how, how secure Abraham is? He has walked with God through uncertainty after uncertainty. And God was faithful. So why not trust God with this uncertainty? Why not trust God with this uncertainty? 
One of the hardest things for single people to do is to trust God when they're looking for the right one. They'll trust God with their finances. They'll trust God that, that God will give them a good job. But they just have a hard time trusting that God will give them the right one. They have a hard time trusting. God, when I'm looking for the right one, I'm trusting my future with you, God. It's a hard thing to do, but it's the only way to go. Might as well trust God because you can't be God. Single people. Stop waiting on someone to pop the question, will you marry me, and say, but God, you promised me. God, you promised me. God, you promised me. May not feel like it will ever happen. May not feel like anybody's looking my way. May not feel like I'm strong enough or I'm ready or know what I want. See, I've told this before, and I think it's so true and has been said through generations, but but the reason we do struggle with insecurity in moments like that is because with social media, what we do is we compare our behind the scenes to other people's highlight reel. We know what we do, but then we see everybody else's best face, so to speak. And then we get insecure. And the reality of it is, is that God promises each of us. He goes on to verse 9. I want you to see this because it's so powerful. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master Abraham. Here we go again. And then he reached in and got some hand sanitizer. No, he didn't do that. He swore an oath. He puts his hand there again. He swears an oath to him concerning this matter. Notice this. He swears an oath. I will not allow my son to leave the land. He goes on to verse 10. Then the servant left, taking with him ten of his master's camels, loaded with all kinds of good things from his master. And he set out for Aram Nahorim and made his way to the town of Nahor. Let me ask you a question. Why did he take ten camels? Because back then you had to pay a dowry for your bride. It was a way of showing an investment to the father of the bride. Think of an engagement ring. When I went to the ATM machine in September of 2006 and I emptied out not everything that was in the ATM, but everything I had in the ATM. And I went to Jared. He went to Jared. He went to Jared. He went to Jared. Yeah, he went to Jared. And I went to Jared and got the ring. I then bought some plane tickets and flew that darling there on the fourth row up to New York City. And we spent a 23-hour day. We went to Bryant Park, and I asked her to marry me. I put an engagement ring on that left finger. She's been wearing it ever since. I made an investment. I'm in an investment. This servant knows something that all married men know. And if you don't know it, you haven't lived long enough. Let me help every young man in the room. Abraham sends the servant with ten camels. Why? Because write this down. The most important part I'll give you. Women are expensive. It's an immutable principle. It's an immutable principle. It never changes. Women are expensive the same yesterday, today, and forever. Never changing, immutable. So he sets out of the town. And notice the Bible says in verse uh, 10, he, he set out with intention. I like that. It makes me think there was some intention about it. What happens is we talk about love and romance like it's haphazardly. You heard somebody say, man, I just fell in love. I'm like, well, you don't fall in love. Not real love. Because love is patient and kind. When's the last time you fell into patience? When's the last time you fell into kindness, just tripped over into patience? No, no, no. That's called intention, okay? Love is patient and kind. You know what that means? You don't fall in love. In fact, you don't fall in love with God. Agape love is not tripping into it. You have to rise in it. That means you have to do the things necessary to make the love increase. You rise in agape love. You don't fall into love. You continue to grow in that love. And so when we talk about love and relationships, we put a direction. We put an intention. We make a decision. And he set out with intention in this whole process. And I like that. Now what happens is there's so much practical stuff, and this applies to everyone. Look what happens in what the servant does in verse 11. You ready? What a powerful love story. He had the camels kneel down near the well outside the town. This is Eleazar, 500 miles away from Isaac. It was toward evening, the time when women go out to draw water. That's pretty powerful. Some people wait until someone else sets them up. This guy says, I'm going to set myself up. He's like he's setting a trap. He's going out to where the women are. At the well at the right time. And he puts his camels all around the well just so she knows he's loaded. So look, look how many camels I got, sister. Look at that, 10 camels. You know what I'm saying? So he, he loads up his, his camels, lines them up. And you're about to see how God speaks. But let me encourage you. The journey that the servant took to the place of the well was five, about 450 miles. So listen to me carefully. 450 miles with 10 camels would have taken about 21 days, maybe longer, with an entourage of 10 camels. That was a lot to manage. I want to ask you a question. Do you think that over the course of 21 days, they came across some hard times on that journey? Yes. yes. Do you think there were times when they couldn't find water for the camels? Yes. 
Do you think that the camels and the people were thirsty sometimes? Yes. Do you think that it was difficult at times? Yes. Do you think they were exhausted at times? Yes. But in the context of the longest chapter in the whole book of Genesis, 67 verses, do you know how many verses are devoted to describing the difficulty of the journey for Eleazar and the ten camels? Zero. Zilch. Why, Pastor Craig? Because it's not even worth mentioning compared to the promise God fulfills. You better hear me today as I preach this. What are you saying? When you're going through a hard journey, when you're going through a difficult time, especially when you're single and you're hoping and you're wishing. I know what that feels like. You're hoping, you're wishing. You're hoping that person. You hope when that date works, it's that person. You put your emotions in and you're trying to figure it out and you see God's faithfulness and, and nobody will ever look my way and my marriage won't ever get any better and, and it seems like it's a dead end and nobody ever... Let me assure you something. When you get to the other side and you see God's faithfulness in your life, if you're obedient to him, I promise you, I'm going to make you a promise according to God's word. If you will be obedient to him, the payoff to the promise is so great in your life, it won't even be worth devoting a footnote. You won't even give one line to talking about the difficulty of the journey of singleness because God will bless you so abundantly. God will give you such joy. God will give you such fulfillment in the relationship. Why? Because that's how good the Lord is. The journey was not even given a word. Paul would say, I consider the present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. These momentary afflictions are light and passing, and they're working in us a far exceeding weight of glory. That's why I love doing weddings. I've probably done 30 weddings now, and I love doing weddings because I watch people from the time they meet Jesus or meet each other, and then I get to sit there and see God bring two souls together, souls who had no intention or desire of getting together, souls that were so messed up and, and jacked up and have sexual issues and around in their life, and God did a healing process, and I'm able to stand there and watch, having done all to stand and God still shows grace and God still shows the promise of the payoff and I celebrate and say God you're amazing God you're the great matchmaker God you do things that no man can ever do it's so enjoying it's so joyful and it's so fulfilling for me as a pastor so you say the journey's hard right now I understand you're in the middle of Good Friday and you feel like you're going to some crucifixion. Well, let me tell you something. The death of Jesus lasted three days, but he's been risen for 2,000 years. And the day that evil won is only a footnote, an hour in the span of the redemptive power of God's story. And so it will be in your story. I know it's difficult and it seems like it's big, but it's just a footnote. It's just three days and there's been 2,000 years where he's been resurrected and reigning. And I'm going to tell you, in your life, you may go through the Good Friday. It will be short. There is coming a day where you'll see the promise to the payoff because God is faithful. Because Isaac and because Rebecca are part of a greater story. And your marriage, I don't know if you know this or not, it's just not about your marriage. It's about foundation of the molding the foundations of generations to come. And it's a part of a bigger story. It's called the gospel story. And God wants to use your marriage to show a testimony and a witness to the world of how he loves his church and what he wants to do in this last day. And if you'll understand that you're part of a bigger story and your marriage is a part of a bigger story. One man called, God called him out. His name was Abraham. And he brought him and said, I'm going to make you the father of many nations and you got to understand today that your story your marriage your singleness is part of a bigger plan and a bigger story that God is writing and the subplot of your story will work to his predetermined purpose because he's the master author he knows your beginning from the end and he is faithful he's faithful so he goes on to verse 12 and he prayed that's a good thing to do when you're waiting Lord God of my master Abraham Make me successful today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I'm standing beside this spring. This dude's smart, is he not? Lined up his camels. He's ready for her to walk out. And the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. Verse 14. May it be that when I see a young woman and I say to her, Please let you on your jar that I may drink. And she says, Drink and I'll water your camels too, bro. <laughs> let her be the one. That you chosen for your servant. And by this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Let me talk about that. He prays. Then he positions. He prays. Then he positions. And both are important. Some people are so spiritual to say, oh, I'm waiting on my man. Well, what's God going to do? Is he going to ship him in a FedEx box and ship him to your door? And you're going to walk out. There's my man. <laughs> so you wait. But you pray and you position. Everybody say pray and position. Well, I'm just waiting Pastor Craig on God to send me a woman. Well, look, you got $25,000 in credit card debt, and if God does send you the right one, you won't be ready to take care of a family, so you better get your house in order stop just praying and do some positioning. You better do the things necessary to get yourself in ready and get your home in order and get your life in ready. Why? He, why is he at the well? Why did Eleazar go to the well and not the club? What is a well? 
It's a place where responsible people go. Productive people. It's a place of industry and commerce. Can I ask you something honestly? For those in the room, you say, I love God. We say we love God, but we're going out and meeting people in places where God's not even a sideshow, much less a main event. How do you think you'll find the right person in the wrong, in the wrong place? How do you think you'll find the person God's called you to be with by leaving the land? It's an impossibility. You come to church every week or every six weeks. Pastor Greg, I can't find a good woman. I'm like, dude, join the welcome team, bro. Be a parking lot attendant. Get some license tag numbers. Do some research. You know what I'm saying? I'm just totally kidding. Don't be a creeper. No creepers allowed, okay? No creepers allowed here at Dwelling Place. Don't, don't take any license plate numbers. I can't find a Christian woman. I'm like, bro, you ain't been to church in three weeks. If I'm looking for a Christian woman, I'd be here like three hours early praying on my knees. I'd be in every welcome team. I don't even know if I'd go in the gathering. I'd be out there to welcome team. Come on, Lord Jesus, where's she at? I got my camels lined up. I'm ready for a drink of water. You know, that's what I would do. I would be looking in the right places. Look what he says in verse 14. I love this. She comes. I'll know that you've shown Kindness. When I see this woman that's coming to give water. In other words, I'm looking for a woman who's selfless, a servant. I'm looking for a woman of character. That's who we should be looking for. Amen? We should be looking for a servant's humility, a servant's heart, someone who's committed to the Lord. He doesn't get on his knees at this moment and say, Lord, give me a sign. And here's the sign I want. Y'all make her hot. (laughs) Really, really hot. Smoking hot. Come on, God. Listen, don't pray God would send you a woman. And the best thing you can think of to qualify her as a woman is that she's just smoking hot. It's important. Or don't just pray that God would ask you a man. And the only qualifying thing is to qualify him for your marriage is you want him to have hair like Justin Bieber. Okay? I know we got a lot of believers in here. All right? But that's not God's specialty. Now, it's important. In verse 16, the Bible says she was beautiful. But it's not the most important thing. It's not the most important thing. You talk to girls. I've been doing student ministry for 12 years. Yeah, he's... He's cute. He really made me laugh. Laugh, Pastor Craig. Yeah, you'll be laughing when he's unemployed and not leading your family spiritually. Ha, 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 He better have some good jokes when he can't pay the light bill, right? You better stand on his head when he can't pay. You got no lights on in your house. You're going to be. And, and people say, well, I just like the, I like the bad ones. Okay, you're stupid. <laughs> I don't know how to say it. Okay, you're ignoramus. You left four or more on the triangle at Cracker Barrel. You know what I'm saying? Okay, you. Ignoramus. It's got to be more than that. Look what he says in verse 15. Before he finished praying, Rebecca came out with her jar on her shoulder. Woo, you ever seen a girl with a jar on her shoulder? Looking all fine with a jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor. Now, folks... Wouldn't it be awesome if God always answered so quickly? The Bible says while he was praying, here she comes. Woo, I like that kind of prayer. Wouldn't that be awesome every time you go, Lord Jesus. Oh, dear Edda, baby Jesus. You know what I'm saying? I mean, every time. I mean, you can't even get. Is it even legal for God to answer a prayer when you had not finished and said in Jesus' name, amen? Well, obviously it is. But see, some, for some people that discourages them because, look, you say, well, I prayed and he doesn't answer me like that. And you get frustrated because you see your friends pray and God answers their prayers very quickly, but he's not answering yours. And here comes Rebecca with a jar on her shoulder. I mean, come on, it's all working out. At this point, I've got a question for you. Did Isaac know anything about Rebecca? Was Isaac there? For all we know, he didn't even know his dad sent a servant. She's 500 miles. He's 500 miles away. Oh... So while the servant was praying, he begins to see, okay, this is the woman who's coming. And for all we know, we don't know even if his dad told him that he had sent a servant. Just, we just know that he's 40 years old back doing what God's called him to do. See, if we don't think, we think if we don't see the solution, God hasn't sent the answer. But I would say, and if you don't catch anything I've preached today, catch this. If you have prayed and you've trusted to him, I know it's not easy. He is working even if it's 500 miles away in a situation you can't say. You can't see and you don't even know about. He could be working on your spouse in a situation that's a thousand miles away. And you can't see and you have no recollection and no understanding about why. Because if you trusted it to him, you walk by faith and not by sight. Abraham's the father of faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. What do you do when you can't see God working in your situation? You trust it to him anyways. 
You trust it. You pray. You position. Listen to me. Listen to me. Maybe God is answering your prayer right now through your preparation because he's given it time. You can find the right one and make them the wrong one because you aren't ready to be the right one yet. So what does it mean for us? I have to be paying attention to myself, growing, becoming who God's called me to be. You have to trust God's timing. You have to. Look at it. It goes on. I'm coming to the close here. The Bible says in verse 15 and 16, notice verse 16, the woman was very beautiful. That's Rebecca, a virgin. Pause. Do you notice how virginity and beauty are mentioned side by side in this passage? Beautiful and virgin are in the very next door neighbors. And I need some moms and dads to give some amens right here. I want to say to every lady in here, especially those who are single ladies, purity is beautiful. Purity is absolutely beautiful. I don't care what the world tells you. Purity is beautiful. You say, Pastor Craig, I'm not pure. Well, you can be pure from this day forward. From right now. From this day forward, you can be pure. I want to see women who begin to understand that it's a pure heart and trust that really makes you attractive. It's a pure heart and trust that really makes you attractive, especially to the kind of people you want to attract. I'm here to, you know, as a pastor, to want to raise up young women who will not sacrifice their future on the altar of momentary satisfaction. And they won't sacrifice their future on the altar of a man's lust. A dud who thinks he's a stud but can't keep himself under control. I, I, I long for a day when we have enough young ladies in our, our, our community and enough ladies in our nation that they would understand that beauty truly is seen in purity because then that will begin to change. Then relationships begin to change. I know it's a responsibility of men as well, but listen, you got to understand, Rebecca was beautiful and she was a virgin, virtuous, pure. He goes on to verse 16. Look at this. At 17, the servant hurried to meet her and said, Please give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my Lord, she said. And quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. After she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too. Woo! Until they had enough water to drink. Pause. How many camels are there? Ten. A camel drinks 40 gallons of water minimum. This woman, woman went up and down the stairs. It wasn't drawing like this. She went probably for three to six hours watering him and the camels. I want to tell you this woman went well above and beyond. She's what we call exceptional. Listen to me, young men. Do you want a woman who just gets by in the things of God, who goes up far and above and beyond and is an exceptional in the things of God? One who is exceptionally hungry for God, exceptionally hungry for the things of God. Or do we want somebody who can barely get by in the things of God? The Bible says that she watered all the camels. Now, I'm not telling you to put a standard on a woman that you wouldn't put on yourself or put a standard on a woman that God wouldn't put on that woman. But the reality is when it comes to relationships, you do not settle. You do not settle. Don't settle. She's watering all this man's camels. She's smooth. Verse 20. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw more water, drew enough for all his camels. Verse 21. Listen to me. Every young man, listen very carefully. Without saying a word... The, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. Some of you, if you're single and you're a young man in here, you'd do really good just to shut up and watch. Just observe. Oh, I love you, I love you, I love you. Shut up. You don't need to say that to her. You just need to sit back and watch. People say, oh, I just, I'm just obnoxious and I'm anxious. No, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't invest your words and don't invest your heart until you invest your time. Just sit back. Get to watch her in a community. If you'll do it, if you'll sit back and watch her in a community, see how she interacts with other people, see how she interacts with the people of God, see how she interacts around the church, then all of a sudden you'll begin to find out whether or not the Lord made your journey successful. Don't be anxious. Just shut up. Just sit back and don't say a word. That's what he said. The servant just, don't you love, how practical can you get in a passage, by the way? I mean, how much more practical? You just sit down and watch him. There's Rebecca. What's that girl's name? Abigail. Abigail's pretty good. Let's see which one's the strongest. Let's see which one has the triceps to pick up the water bucket. I mean, just sit back and watch him. I want to find the servant. I want to find the one in humility. I tell people all the time, how did you know? How did you know Meredith was the one? I'll just be honest with you. I saw her in church. And I looked at her, and it was the first girl I'd ever looked at. And I realized, oh, my God, she's a human being. I know it sounds weird. I looked at her, and I was like, oh, that's a, whoa, that's a person. Like, woo, I really like that. That's a person looking at me. He's got substance. I'd go to the daycare, and she'd be playing at Middle Valley with the kids. And I'd watch her get down, and kids have dirty hands and rub them in her hair. And she'd pick them up and hug them. And I'm like, whoa, dear God, this is, I don't know if I can wait any longer. I begin to be attracted to the things that 
I need to be attracted to. I begin to watch her interact with people. Woo! I liked it. I begin to watch her humble herself. I begin to watch how she served other people. All of a sudden, this affection began to grow. She's watering the animals. Verse 22, we're almost finished. Look what the scripture says. When the camels were finished drinking, the man took out a gold nose ring weighing a becca and two gold bracelets weighing ten shekels. And he asked, where'd you get those from? Juicy? Jared's? He didn't. He asked, whose daughter are you? She said, please tell him. There's room in your father's house. Is there room for us to spend the night? She answered him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Melchabor to Nahor. Verse 25. And she added, we have plenty of straw and fodder. What, dude's after, what dude is not after straw and fodder? You know, Adam, you after straw and fodder? I mean, I am. As well as room for you to spend the night. And she added, we have plenty for you to spend the night. Verse 26, then the man bowed down and worshiped the Lord, saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. The Lord has led me. Don't you see that God was the center of this relationship from its beginning? He was the center from its inception. Here's what happens. I'm going to skip because we don't have time. They go back to Rebecca's house. Rebecca's just learning this story. She don't know this story. She don't know that's the servant. She don't know that Isaac's back waiting, does she? She don't know that. So they get back, and so Eleazar sits down with Dad. He says, Dad, I was sent by my master Abraham, and we came 450 miles in 21 days, and we sat there at the well, and we saw your daughter. And he began to tell the story. And then the dad tells the story, and then Rebecca tells the story. And here's what I'm here to say, is that it's beautiful because it is a God story. And if you're single in the room, that's what you want. You don't want a Hollywood story, because a Hollywood story ends with flowers at the altar, and then what? A God story is something that's so much greater. And they begin to see how God promised to Abraham, but God began to fulfill that promise in another family. And all of their conversation was about God and how he ordained it. And notice the first conversation after they find the woman is with the woman's dad. Pretty good preaching, isn't it? With the woman's dad. They come into the dad's house and begin to talk to the dad about her daughter, about this man named Isaac. He finally ends in verse 49 and 51. So now if you'll show kindness and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me so I may know which way to turn. It says, Laban and Bethel answered, this is from the Lord. We could say nothing to you one way or the other. Here's Rebecca. Take her and go. Let her become the wife of your master's son as the Lord has directed her. In other words, take her. Now, I don't have time to show this, but the next few verses, they try to keep her for 10 more days because it's really hard for parents to let go of their daughter. But let's skip the next part. She leaves. In verse 60, you ready? We close. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, let me just pause right there and say, parents, bless your children. Can you say that? Say, bless your children. Every dad, you ought to bless your daughter so good she doesn't need some boy to tell her she's beautiful one day because she's heard it her whole life. I want Marley's ears to be bleeding with beauty. I want her to be bleeding with affirmation. She doesn't need it from any other guy because her daddy's told her she's beautiful every day. You have the opportunity to bless your children, and, she, and, and he blesses her. He blesses her. And look what he says. Folks, this is so powerful. This is unbelievably powerful. Verse 61. Verse 60, our sister, may you increase to thousands upon thousands. Listen to her dad. And may your offspring possess the cities of their enemies. Does that not sound eerily similar to what God promised Abraham in Genesis 12? He said your descendants will be as numerous. So catch this. God promised one family. And then what happens? The other family uses the same language to bless their daughter to fulfill the promise. What are you saying? Your marriage is so much bigger than just you and your husband or you and your wife. It's to fulfill God's promise. It's a part of a bigger plan. It's a part of a bigger story. And he goes on in verse 62. And Rebecca and her tenants got ready, mounted the camels, and went back with the man. Now Isaac had come from Beer Lahai, and he was in Roy. He was living in Negev. And he went out to the field one evening to meditate. And as he looked up, he saw camels approaching. Storybook ending. Rebecca also looked up and saw Isaac. She got down from her camel and asked the servant, Who is that man in the field? He said, He's my master. So she took her veil. She said yes to the dress. She covered herself. Then the servant told Isaac all he had done. Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah. He married Rebecca, so she became his wife, and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his 
mother's death. For all of you having a difficult time in your story right now, you may be in that 500-mile journey. Your story is a part of a bigger story. It's a gospel story. And he will use all of this one day to, to, to show that he is faithful. And I want to tell you today that true security and true love isn't finding in the right, isn't finding the right person. It's in being the right person. And what's interesting to me is that Isaac was just simply in a field meditating, doing what God had called him to do, and God handled the rest. Did you see that? God handled all the rest. I'm going to ask the band to come. God handled all the rest. Listen to me, Zeke. Listen to me. If you're a male in here, where we get ourselves in trouble is when we begin to search out and seek out beyond what God has promised. I've always been encouraged by the story of Genesis chapter 2 where God created Adam and Eve. But do you remember when God created Adam? The Bible says that he caused him to go into a deep sleep. Remember this? And the Bible says that he took one of the ribs of Eve and he fashioned her together. And then the Bible says when she woke up, he brought her to the man. I've always read it as being he took the rib right next to Adam. He created the woman. He woke up and she was there. That is not what your Bible says. It says he took her to another place. He formed her and brought her to the man. That means God will bring the woman into your life, man. And where men get in trouble is when they start searching outside of God's call. They start searching for something beyond their reach. And the Bible says that Eve was brought to If you'll be faithful, Isaac, to do all God's called you to do, he'll take care of everything else. He'll bring the right relationship at the right time, in the right place, in the right way, because our God is faithful. I want you to say, God has promised me. Come on, say it again. God has promised me. That's what he said. God has promised me. That's where our security is found.